0: To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash dsmplus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, it's Anna. We changed our plans for Death, Sex, and Money this week as we watched the slow-moving storm pummel the Gulf Coast. Harvey has made us think about the conversations we had in New Orleans two years ago for a series about life there around the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. In those episodes, we profiled five people and heard in detail about how their lives were forever changed by a few days of rain, wind, and catastrophic floods. We also heard about their collective trauma of having the home you know suddenly underwater and about the long, long process of rebuilding— So as we think about Houston and other affected areas this week, we wanted to revisit one of those episodes from 2015. You'll meet Dr. Kirsta Kurtz-Burke, who was working at a hospital when Katrina hit. As you listen, think about the scores of people who are working along the Gulf Coast this week, trying to help each other in a desperate
1: situation. For the people that work there, you know, this was part of what our training was. And a lot of people that worked at that hospital, we were attracted to kind of chaotic environment. That's why we were there. This is Death, Sex, and Money
0: in New Orleans. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. When the thick summer heat settles over New Orleans, it all comes back to Kirsta Kurtzberg.
1: The body remembers When it gets hot, I tend to have more dreams. It's hurricane season, too, so, you know, you hear on the news, okay, and you're thinking to yourself, i got to make sure I have a tank full of gas. I have to have these things in place in case I need to evacuate. Ten
0: years ago, Kirsta didn't evacuate. She was inside New Orleans' Charity Hospital, the public hospital that had served New Orleans residents rich and poor in some form since the 18th
1: century. Charity Hospital was a pretty chaotic place day in and day out. So there was that level of um, that this was what we always did, maybe just a little bit more insane. Kirsta is a rehab physician,
0: and as Katrina hit New Orleans and the levees failed, she was with more than 350 stranded patients. Water flooded into the hospital, windows were shattered by the wind, and there was no power.
2: It's like by now it's 106 degrees. There are no lights. We're reduced to feeding people very small portions.
0: Kirsta was interviewed by Anna DeVere Smith, the actor and playwright, about two months after the storm. That became a monologue in DeVere Smith's one-woman show about healthcare in America that's called Let Me Down Easy. I played a recording of the monologue for Kirsta when we met up in New Orleans. Let's listen now
2: and see I tried to keep a kind of sip upper lip in the beginning, you know, hey, we're gonna get out of here, don't worry about it, blah, blah, blah.
0: Kirsta is white and from the Midwest but most of the nurses she worked with and her patients were black residents of New Orleans. And she noticed they had much lower expectations for how they'd be treated in the emergency.
2: And here I am coming from my privileged position. What do you mean they're not gonna come and get us? Of course they're gonna come and get us. FEMA knew we were here. We are in constant contact with FEMA, but my patients really did sense. And that part made me ashamed. And it's just, I just thought, well, this, is, this must mean it would be like your whole life. Just this feeling that, that we have to do for ourselves because nobody's going to come and get us. Just that feeling of being abandoned, that, that was all new for me, being abandoned. But for my patients and the people who work at Charity Hospital, it was just one more thing.
1: That's very emotional. I've Actually, I heard it one time. But obviously, it's uh, very deep, deeply lodged in my heart. I really hear my voice in that. It's it's still very present for me. You know, I have very clear memories of every single moment of every single day that we were in the hospital.
0: Over six days, Kirsta helped carry patients up and down flights of stairs and tried to keep people calm when it seemed like no one was coming to rescue them. She was part of the last group of people to leave the hospital the Friday after the storm.
1: We even cleaned the, the physical space before we left. You know, we thought, we'll be back here in a week or two weeks, pretty naive at the time. But we didn't want it to look messy. And so we cleaned up, you know, made sure everything was in the right spot. And we had used a lot of towels to mop up. And so we put everything, stacked it up. Um, we really didn't know that that was not a reality that we were going to return to those jobs. and where did you go on um, Friday? So on Friday, they actually thank God for uh, the Cajun Navy, as we call them. It was not it was, you know, not FEMA. It was not the federal government. It was actually Department of Wildlife and Fisheries who kind of were watching everything go on. And they just said, we need to get in there with fan boats. So we were evacuated. Our patients were evacuated. They went kind of all over the place. And then we were put on buses. We were put on boats and then put on buses. And we could see the layout of the city. And I could see kind of off in the distance my neighborhood. And I knew that it was completely flooded. We had about eight feet in our neighborhood. So, you know, we had not seen... Video, photographs. Um, Anderson Cooper, getting Yeah, famous. Anderson Cooper. Yeah. That was all to come really later. What did you
0: do with your anger after Katrina and those days of waiting at charity?
1: Um, um, I was much more angry later, I think, in retrospect. I was so focused in the days we were in the hospital of getting out, and it was only in retrospect that I felt so angry. I felt, I was so angry about the way that New Orleans was portrayed during that time. I was just furious. Um, and again, we didn't have, I didn't have, um, the images and, um, little news clips of people looting. You know, I remember being, um, somewhere in front of a TV, um, a couple months after the storm and seeing some clips and kind of the way that that people were portrayed. And I think that infuriated me. I think I threw something at the TV. Kirsten was back treating patients within about a month after Katrina,
0: working for the VA.
1: We had a a temporary clinic set up in Baton Rouge. We're still in a temporary facility, believe it or not, in New Orleans.
0: That temporary VA location sits right across the street from the old Charity Building. Charity Hospital never reopened after the storm. The hulking Art Deco building has stood empty, abandoned, for ten years.
1: You can still see there's some a very faded poster up there on the the fourth floor, and then the fifth floor is where the the rehab unit where I was with patients, and you can still see those posters. Um, A lot of people made posters saying thank you um, when we were eventually evacuated. Um, And around the front, you can still see some posters that say help. (laughs) Um, So now I work at the Veterans Affairs Hospital, which is just right across the way. At the VA, Kirsta sees a lot of patients now
0: with traumatic brain and spinal cord injuries and amputations. One
1: patient is 103. It's a World War II vet, and then I have patients that are in their mid to late 20s. A lot of the people that I serve and that I take care of are from a small town where everyone in their high school class went into the military. But at the same time, as a country, so few of us are really touched by the military. So you just have pockets and pockets of people for whom the last two wars have been all-encompassing, And then you have another group of Americans who see it on TV, uh, read about it, but otherwise are relatively unscathed by it. The way you describe that, a
0: a small core group Mm -hmm. who were very affected, and then in the midst of this larger culture that doesn't understand and won't ever understand, is very similar to how you described the experience of
1: living here through the storm. It's true. I never really thought of it, but it's true. You you have experiences. I would never you know, compare my experience of being in Katrina to being in combat. But I do relate to, in some ways, how much difficulty they have with everyday life. Um, it's very hard, I think, when you're in a life-or-death situation um, and so many things are dependent on you. And then you come home and your wife or your husband says, geez, you forgot the milk again, you know? And suddenly there's a routineness to life that um, doesn't have the same same impact on the world. And so I do relate to that part of it, I think, more than I ever have before. The, the people that you worked with during the storm,
0: mm-hmm. are you still working with them in some, some form? Some
1: people, not very many. We've all wound up at different hospitals. Um when I see people, when I talk to people from that experience it's it's always very emotional. We kind of all dispersed all over the place, which is that was a that's a such a minor disappointment in the big scheme of things, but to not ever have that closure to not ever be together again um was painful um you know, we just kind of all got on buses and We all got on different buses. We got on any boat, any bus we could. And I really had no idea that we wouldn't all be in the same place or, you know, be able to say thank you to one another. (laughs) That's still something I would love. Coming up,
0: Kirsta describes the tediousness of rebuilding and all the ways Katrina is a part
1: of life 10 years later for her and for her patients at the VA. You know, I have a lot of Vietnam-era vets who... Most of their combat took place in water. They may have had a very traumatic experience during Katrina. And I worry about that. You know, I worry about flashbacks.
0: This conversation with Kirsta was one of five I had with survivors of Hurricane Katrina about the years after the storm and what they remember about the moment it hit. It didn't matter who you was.
1: Everybody was in the same
0: There was definitely that sinking feeling in your stomach when you're in survival.
1: So we got out of town, went to uh, some relatives in Houston.
0: And like that was the moment it all solidified. You were like, shit, the world died. Those are the voices of Big Frida, Simone Bruni, the demo diva, New Orleans corner Jeffrey Rouse, and Terry Coleman, a professor who's lived in New Orleans most of her life. There's a link to our whole series about New Orleans 10 years after Katrina on our Facebook page. We hope that in listening to these stories, you are moved to help those in the path of Harvey. We've compiled a list of organizations you can give to to support the disaster response now and the recovery to come. It's on our website at deathsexmoney.org. I gave to the Texas Diaper Bank. Katie gave to All Hands Volunteers. Annabelle gave to the Houston Coalition for the Homeless. And if you're listening to us in Houston or another affected area and know of a recovery effort that needs support, please add it in the comments on our website. And know we're thinking of you. If you want to write us and send us a voice memo or an email and tell us how you're doing, we're listening. Send us your thoughts at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Kirsta Kurtzberg and her husband, Justin Lundgren, are both doctors. They met in college in New York City and moved to New Orleans 23 years ago.
1: I thought it was such a romantic story. You know, we came to New Orleans on vacation and we never left. Um, And then I found out, yeah, like a lot of people, they have that story. They bought their house in the
0: mid-city area of New Orleans in 2003. It was heavily damaged in Katrina she says adrenaline got her through the first year and a half after the storm but then that ran out
1: all of the energy that drove us to rebuild or to make a life in the new new orleans that can't be sustained forever I definitely felt that. It's one thing to be able to sustain that. Okay, I'm going to eat off paper plates. We're going to have candles and we're going to gut our house and then we're going to rebuild it. And I'm working in a temporary facility. But as that goes on, it just gets really old. Things go so slowly in New Orleans. And then you add into it the federal government, you add into it you know, insurance payments. We were lucky we had insurance, but you know, it took It took over a year to even be able to access that. So you're slowly rebuilding your house. Your neighborhood's coming back a little by little. Schools were not reopened for an entire year after the storm. So we didn't hear kids. You know, it's a really strange thing in our neighborhood. Was there a part of you that thought about leaving
0: and starting in a different place?
1: You know, very remotely, very like a flicker, I would say, when I look back, of course, I would love to say it was all this very noble intentions. You know, we knew that New Orleans needed healthcare providers. We didn't want to abandon the city we loved, but there's this other sense of we can't live any place else. We just got too weird for any place else other than New Orleans. Like, what would you think about when you say we got too weird? Like- <laughs> um. Just I don't think there would be very many other places where it would be acceptable to be a half an hour late for work because you ran into a second line or, you know, spend your free time making costumes for months on end or... Just, I think also Katrina. You know, I think there was a, a definitely, if there was another, if there was a sense of otherness before the storm, then there was, it's also the sense of how are we going to go someplace where people understand what happened? But at the same time, it's also part of the story that we tell ourselves in order to bond ourselves to the place and not leave. Because why would you stay? It's, it's an absolutely insane place to have a city in this day and age. We're under sea level. The coast is eroding. Um, another disaster could happen at any time. Uh, it's a broken city in a lot of ways. The infrastructure is incredibly corrupt. I could go on and on and on. Um, but part of it is the longer that you live here, the less fit you are to live anywhere else as well. <laughs> I mean, the way you describe it, it's like you you become a little bit mad. Yeah. I think touched. I love that word, and I didn't grow up with that word, but we use it a lot in New Orleans. Like, you're just a little bit touched. It can mean a little bit crazy, a little bit strange. It's just a little bit off. Um, You have to be a little bit off to see this place and... Say, this is where I'm going to lay down roots. This is where my kids are going to go to school. I'm going to rebuild friendships. In this very tenuous place, I think you have to be a little bit touched.
0: Kirsten and her husband are now parents to two six year olds. Their son, Leo, is from China. They brought him home in 2010. Two years earlier, they adopted their daughter, Vita, from Thibodeau, Louisiana, which is about an hour from New Orleans. They started the adoption process before Katrina. A social worker was scheduled to come
1: by for a home visit. Right around the time of the storm. So needless to say, that didn't happen. And then about two years later, we continued the process. Um, and we, in the course of all this, it took much, much longer than I thought it would. But we met a woman here in Louisiana who's my daughter's birth mom Um, and she was about four months pregnant um, with my daughter Vita and she felt very strongly that this was not meant to be her child, that this was meant to be a child for someone else and we got to be at the hospital with her when Vita was born. Um, She never wavered in her decision that she was not going to be a parent to this baby girl that we were meant to be her parents but it was really hard it was not it was not easy i think that in the beginning of starting that adoption process i really in my mind i knew that having an open adoption having you know the birth mother involved birth family and being a part of the child's life and having that openness was the right thing to do but when I really think about it, um, I think I was paying a lot of lip service to it. I think it's really different to say that and then to have a relationship with your child's birth mother. Um, and, I, you know, I haven't always known where the boundaries are, but I also didn't know how much joy I would have in having her in my life. And, you know, she is also my daughter's mother. Um, I'm so excited when, you know, when she gets student of the week, I text my husband and the next person I text is Tracy because I see so much of her and my daughter. And so I did not know that that relationship would be um, so important to me or I thought that I could do that, but I didn't know how much I would really enjoy it.
0: Kirsten's son was abandoned on the street in Taiwan, China, and was taken in by an orphanage. He was born missing most of his left foot. Kirsten and her husband don't have any information about who his parents are. It's an
1: absolute question mark and blank slate for my son. And we try to be realistic. We try to say, um, I don't know. I tell him a lot of, I don't know. We know Where he was found, we know the orphanage he was placed in, Um, we went to visit it, we met some of the people, but there are a lot of question marks, and um, I wish I had those answers. And I mainly um, wish that I could speak to his birth mom, and I want to tell them that he's doing great, and that he got a robot foot, and that this is a design he picked out. And this is what Mardi Gras is like, and one of the first full sentences he learned how to say was, throw me something, mister. (laughs) we had only been home about six months, and, you know, he learned English pretty quickly, but it was just like, you know, that was one of the first full sentences he learned. So I would love that. I would give anything for that. Um, I just never knew it was possible to miss somebody that you've never met before. What's it been like to raise kids in New Orleans after Katrina? Absolutely magical. Absolutely magical. You know, this is not the probably on the top ten list of places that you would raise, a, you know, that never makes the family circle top ten places to raise kids. But um, there's an amazing street culture, amazing music culture, and... They don't know anything else, you know. They, we talk about it a little bit. They have some, you know, sense of Katrina. They go to a school that's K through 8, so some of the older kids have experienced it. But they don't really know, you know, they don't really have any sense of before and after. They do know, however, that you can evacuate and that we will evacuate and that we need to keep a tank full of gas. <laughs>
0: Dr. Kirsta Kurtz-Burke. She still works at the VA in New Orleans, now in their brand new facility, and she's heading to Texas on Friday to volunteer with a medical team. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Anna Hyatt, Zoe Azule, Stephanie Billman, David Herman, Rick Kwan, Joe Plored, Rachel Aronoff, Benjamin Franklin, and Lane Kaplan-Levinson. Photographer Rush Go took pictures of all the people in our In New Orleans series. You can check them out at deathsexmoney.org slash inneworleans. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. And this is the Outerboro Brass Band performing it, thanks to band members Jeff Pierce, Scott Bourgeois, Rick Faulkner, Joe Scatazza, and Jason Isaac. We're also including the list of ways you can contribute to Harvey Relief in our weekly newsletter this week. Subscribe at deathsexmoney.org newsletter. Kirsta is committed to staying with her family in New Orleans, but that's where her
1: pronouncements about the future of her city end. What's hard living here is we want to have this end to the story. We want to have the 10 years be a closure. Is New Orleans better than ever? Is it a gentrified hipster paradise? Or is it a, you know, sinking hellhole? <laughs> and the reality is there's just no short answer. There's no period on the end of the sentence yet i'm anna sale and this is death sex and money
2: from wnyc